John chapter 16 this morning. In John chapter 16, we were looking at verse 16 through 22. John 16, verses 16 through 22. Here the Word of God says, A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of His disciples among themselves, What is this that He saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see Me, and again a little while, and you shall see Me, and because I go to the Father. And they, were, they said, therefore, What is this that He saith? A little while. We, we cannot tell what He saith. Now Jesus knew, praise the Lord. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask Him, and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while and you shall not see Me, and again a little while and you shall see Me? Verily, verily I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. These verses show us the effect the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ will have on three distinct groups. The first is the world. The world rejoiced at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to verse 20. The world shall rejoice. The second group is the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They experienced a great sorrow over the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorrow and lamenting is what they will experience. The third group is the Lord Jesus Christ. That group made up of one person. He also is affected. He is affected by the sorrow of His followers and comes to them and promises them that their sorrow would be temporary and would be turned into joy. We're going to look at this text in two ways this morning. First, as I often do, we need to understand the text, how it is interpreted. We don't want to add or take away from what is actually being said. But as also I often do, we need to make application. And so this morning, the first thing I'm going to do is look at the interpretation of the text and then we're going to make some application. First, John 16, verse 16. A little while, and you shall not see me. Again, a little while, and you shall see me. Because I go to my Father. Three statements. A little while and you shall not see me. Our Lord was only a few hours away from the crucifixion when He made this statement. A few hours away 
from dying at Calvary's cross. And only a little while he will die and will be buried and separated from his disciples by that death and burial. The second verse, the second statement though is, and again a little while and you shall see me. This refers to his resurrection after his death, after his burial. He was buried out of their sight for three nights and for three days. But on the morning of the first day of the week, he would rise from the grave and meet with them again. A little while and you shall not see me. A little while and you shall see me because I go to my Father. Here's the question. Why did he add, because I go to my Father? He is saying that not only am I going to Calvary, not only am I going to be buried, but he ends this statement of you not seeing me because I'm going to go to my Father. But adds, you shall see me because I go to my Father. What is he there? What is he talking about? The first and most important aspect of this is this. He goes after his death, after his in the burial, before his resurrection, he appears in the presence of God for the people for whom he has died. He personally presents the great sacrifice he made for them before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 speaks of this. Hebrews 9 24. Paul writes and says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place, places made with hands. Paul is saying and reminding us, Jesus Christ did not go behind the veil into the holy of holies to present His sacrifice. The veil had already been torn. The holy of holies had already been exposed. God was no longer there. If he didn't go there, where did he go? Well, he says, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, in our place as our substitute, having taken our sin, having taken the judgment of God, having taken the punishment for our sins, having taken death upon himself. He appears before God in our place as our substitute, having accomplished everything that God had required of Him. And Isaiah 53 says, that sacrifice was accepted. God accepted everything that He had done. God accepted everything. After He accomplished that, He appeared to His disciples on the evening of the first day of the week as a testimony of His resurrection from the dead. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Says, Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven devils. Rose early the first day of the week, the Scriptures confirm and appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Isn't it significant? Or at least it should be to us, that He appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven devils, demons, and He appeared to her first. There was others that had been to the tomb. 
There would be John and Peter. They would all come and look and then go back. Mary came and looked and He wasn't there and wept and, and, and desired to see Him. And He appeared first to her. And then in chapter, John chapter 20 and verse 19, John chapter 20 and verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, the same day right, in the evening hours of the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be with you. Rose the first day of the week in the early morning hours, met with Mary Magdalene, sent her to tell the disciples that He had risen from the grave. He had spent some time on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. He came back in the evening hours into Jerusalem and met in the upper room with His disciples. Still the first day of the week. And so, after appearing in heaven for us, He comes back to this earth to meet with His disciples on the first day of the week. Forty days later, after meeting with disciples on a regular basis, He ascended back into heaven to take His place upon His throne. And there He remains at the right hand of His Father unto this day as our advocate, pleading His sacrifice on our behalf, and our high priest, praying for those that He'd offer a sacrifice for. That's what He means by because I go to my Father. That and much more. Then said some of His disciples among themselves in verse 17, what is this that He saith? And we have this whole conversation going on back and forth. He said, a little while you weren't going to see Me. And He said, in a little while you will see Me because I go to my Father. What is this? They don't understand. They don't understand. In verse 19, Jesus knew and He begins to speak to them about it. The disciples did not fully understand what Jesus Christ was saying. That's the first thing that we see. This is not the first time. It was common among them. And it is common among us that we sometimes do not understand the Word of God. That God says some things and we have an idea, maybe, or we don't understand at all. And it just plagues us. Why don't I understand? Why can't I figure this out? Let me make several comments concerning this. First, a person may be a true Christian, yet not understand many of the things of the Word of God. We need to understand that. These, in a few short days from this text, will be the apostles that turned the world upside down with a gospel message. Only a few short days. The whole of Jerusalem will be shaken on the day of Pentecost. Peter will preach. A week later, after 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, a week later, 5,000 more. These men will turn the world upside down. And yet, at this point, they are not understanding what is going on. The determining factor, listen carefully, regarding true Christianity 
is not the volume of your knowledge, but the depth of your hunger and thirst for the Word of God. Settle that. Please. The determining factor of true Christianity is not the volume of your knowledge, but the depth of your hunger and thirst for the Word of God. And the babe in Christ with little or no understanding is exhorted to come to the milk of the Word of God because he's hungry. Because he's hungry. And yet he's a babe and he understands so little. I add this this morning because among those who profess to believe the doctrines of grace, there is a teaching that without understanding the doctrines of grace, you cannot be a true child of God. Nowhere will you find that in the Word of God. Nowhere. That is a man-made doctrine. You cannot find it in the Word of God. In addition, let me add this. It is a doctrine that completely destroys the grace of God. What do I mean by that? Who maketh thee to differ? If you are as intelligent as John Gill or Jonathan Edwards and as ignorant as Pat Horner, who maketh thee to differ? If you are a babe and can't put ABC together and you are an old man in the Lord and have walked with God 50, 60 years and know something about God, who maketh thee to differ? God, by grace, makes you different. And to teach that a man cannot be saved outside of the knowledge of the doctrines of grace is to contradict grace itself and to put a work upon God which is nowhere found in the Word of God. Again, the determining factor in true salvation is not how much knowledge you have when God saves you, but whether or not you have a hunger and thirst for the Word of God. When I'm talking to someone about their soul, when I'm talking to someone about, about salvation, when I'm talking about, to someone you know, about what Christianity is, I'm listening. Do I hear something of grace? Do I hear something of a hunger and thirst for the Word of God? Do I hear what God has done in the soul? At the same time that I'm making that statement, which is a true statement, I believe, A continual lack of understanding of God's Word may indicate that you lack true salvation. A continual lack. God has saved me and I don't understand. A year later, I still don't understand. Five years later, I still don't understand. Ten years later, I still don't understand. Wait a minute. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because the promise of God is, I will teach every one of my children. John 6 and verse 45. I will teach every one of my children. Now, He doesn't teach us all the same. We don't all grow the same way. You know, 
Well, one thing about having children, more than one, uh, is that you get to see that every one of them is different. And I, one thing about having grandchildren is you get to see every one of them is different. What a difference. Some are big and strong and strapping and others are not quite so big and strong and strapping. <laughs> Who made them different? Same parents. God made them different. Got a little grandson and his greatest desire right now is to be as big as his older brother. I said, hang on, you're going to get there. Okay? He's a little bitty skinny little guy. And his brother's kind of bulked up a little. Hang on. You're going to get there. Don't forget, took your brother all these years to get to that place. We all understand that on a physical level. Why don't we take that same truth and see it as it's unfolded on a spiritual level? God promises to teach every one of His children, brethren. God promises to teach them. And God is the teacher and God brings them along at His pace. They don't understand. What does that mean? A little while, you won't see me a little while, you, you will see. What does that mean? I don't understand what He's talking about. And then God throws in a statement. Verse 19. Jesus knew. Praise the Lord. Jesus knew their heart. Jesus knew their lack of understanding. God knew their heart. God knew their lack of understanding. Learn from wow how the Lord Jesus Christ teaches His disciples. And you'll learn how to minister to those around you that are weak Christians that may not have all the benefits that you've had throughout your Christian life. Our Lord not only knows our ignorance, brethren, but He also knows the desire that we have to learn the truth and to understand His Word. And that desire may be great and flaming, or that may desire may be little, but it is there in the heart of a child of God. Jesus knew. They desired. Is that what it says? Verse 19, Jesus knew they were desirous to ask Him. They wanted to ask God what His Word meant. Many who profess to be God's people, profess to be God's people, often live their lives with their ignorance, content with their ignorance. They express little or no desire to understand the Word of God. They have a couple of cliches that they hang on to, a couple of Bible stories that they can tell, and their whole substance of their Christianity learned in the first few months of Sunday school, and that's what they got, and that's what they got a hold of. And that's all they got. That's a very dangerous place to be. And may reveal that you are not a true Christian. On the other hand, the true child of God cannot be content to remain ignorant. Now, I was told once, and it is a true statement, you don't know what you don't know. Okay? That's true. But one thing about not knowing in the heart of a child of God is they can't just sit there not knowing. They read something in the Word of God, they don't understand it, they want to know. 
And they may read it 20 times before they settle down on that verse. Whoa, how many times I read this and I missed that? I wonder what that means. Okay? That ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Happened to me this past week when I was having my devotions. Whoa, how many times have I read that? In the last 40 plus years. Something inside of us desires to know what God has to say. And is not content with ignorance. In our heart, we want to understand truth if you're a Christian. Again, by degrees, again, not understanding how much desire does a first grader have to understand the truth that he's being educated in as opposed to how much desire does a 12th grader have to understand what he's being educated in after 12 years of education behind him. They both have desire. But this one's got a greater foundation under him. He already knows his ABCs. He already knows his 1, 2, 3s. He already knows how to read. Now he's reading stuff that he doesn't understand he wants to know about. This little guy over here is still stumbling over ABCDEF. But he'll get there. Because he wants to get there. He wants to learn. That's generally speaking. We had a son that didn't want to learn. We had to spank it into him. <laughs> and after he got out of school, he said, Man, I'm glad y'all taught me how to learn, how to study. He didn't like it in the beginning, but he liked it in the end. Our Lord had taught them several times that he was going up to Jerusalem that he was going to die and that he would rise from the grave after three days. Still, hours away from that event, they still don't understand. They still can't grasp it. Were they ashamed to ask? Were they afraid to ask? Well, our text doesn't actually tell us, does it? It just says they don't understand. But other texts brought brought into this will help us to understand what's going on. Go over to Mark chapter 9 if you have your Bibles open this morning. Mark chapter 9, verse 31 and verse 32. I want you to, to see this. Mark 9 and verse 31. We read in Mark 9, 31, For He taught His disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill Him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not the saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand and they were afraid. So, is that what's going on? They're afraid? Is that still what's going on? Partly, I think. I believe so. I'm going to bear this out, uh, flesh this out a little bit before you a little bit more. There's something else going on that Luke reminds us that we see in Mark 16 and Mark and Luke 24. Something else that's happening at this same time and continues to happen until after the resurrection. They did not understand 
at this time in their walk with God. They did not understand what he was saying because their hearts were dull and somewhat hardened from believing what he was saying. Mark tells us about it and so does Luke. Mark 16, verse 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterwards, this is right after their resurrection. This is three days after this conversation. Afterwards, He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why? Because they believed not them which had sent which believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Hardness of heart and unbelief still not believing that he had risen from the grave. Luke gives us a little bit more light. Luke 24. This is talking about a different set of disciples. But the truth of it is still the same. Luke 24, 25. Luke 24, 25. Then said he unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. What do we have here? We have believers on the eve of the crucifixion. We have those who had followed Christ three and a half years. We have Him teaching them, I'm going to go away and you're going to see Me no more. But it won't be long and you will see Me because I go to the Father. And He had told them before and they couldn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They couldn't understand it. They didn't understand it. And part of the reason is that they are afraid. But another part is their heart is not right. They're not ready to believe what he was saying. As we studied in other parts, they're they're believing other things. They're still holding on even up to the time before he ascended to heaven that maybe he will establish a physical kingdom. They're still holding on to ideas of the scriptures that are not biblical. And so it creates in them an unbelief. It creates in them a fear and a dullness of heart. A hardness of heart. And this is where they're at. Yet despite every weakness in every child of God, the Lord knows our need and knows that we have a desire to understand. And that blesses me, brethren, and I hope it helps you. Jesus knew they desired to ask Him Jesus knows the heart. They're desiring to ask, but are afraid or ashamed or whatever the situation is. And He says to them, isn't that what it says in verse 19? Go back over there. Look at it again. John 16, 19. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask Him. And let me add, He said unto them, I don't think I'm violating the text here. And said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves what I said? He said unto them. Isn't that the way our Lord is? Always ready to speak to His children. Always ready to come to them. Always ready to instruct them in His Word in the way in which they should go. 
Brethren, this is our Lord on the eve of His crucifixion. Despite every weakness that they had at that moment in time, these were His children. These were His followers. These were His disciples wanting to know but not able to ask. And He said to them, He would speak to them and He would explain the situation. He's ready to open their eyes so they might see mighty things. Ready to open their hearts so they can understand the things of God. Ready to teach them His way when they don't understand His way. This is our God. This is our God with His disciples. And so the Lord explained to them what He was saying to them in verse 20. And in verse 20, He says three things. The, Lord's going, the world is going to rejoice. The world, both Jew and Gentile, are going to rejoice in my death. The Jews are going to turn me over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to crucify me with the Jews' approval, and Jew and Gentile rejoicing that I am dead and gone. And they're dancing in the halls of Jerusalem. Because finally we're read of this man who calls himself Messiah. At the same time that the world is rejoicing, you are going to be weeping. You are going to be lamenting. You are going to be sorrowing. I'm going to die. And you're going to grieve over that. I'm going to be buried. And you're going to grieve over that. And their grief is going to be so intense that they have said, we thought He was the one. They don't even know that He's coming back. They're caught in such a spiral of grief that they can't remember at all that He says after three days. This is, this is what is going to happen to you. But, after three days, My disciples are going to no longer sorrow and I'm going to put in their heart a joy that is going to last. My joy is going to be there. That's his explanation. And then he quotes a common Hebrew truism that's found in the Old Testament. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because of her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of a child, she remembereth no more the anguish. She remembers no more the sorrow, the lamentations, the tears for joy that a man is born into the world. He draws this out of the Old Testament as proof that their sorrow will be temporary. By the way, look up this phrase. It shows up several times in the Old Testament. Not related to a woman having a child. As an expression of a time of sorrow followed by a time of joy. Common expression among the Jews of a time of sorrow followed by a time of joy. The illustration refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the sorrow and the resurrection as the joy. Verse 22. And you now, therefore, have sorrow. Right now, present tense, you are grieving. But I will see you again. Then I cannot tell you how blessed I was when I read that. Those words, I will see you again. 
and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. I will see you again. What a promise in light of the fact that He's going to Calvary to die. The world believes that death is final and death removes us forever. But it is not true. Death is only a temporary removal. Our Lord had said, you shall see me, verse 16. Now He says, I will see you. What a blessing. Well, they'd never see Him again unless He came back to them. They would never see Him again. He went to Calvary's cross, He was buried, He rose again and ascended to heaven to take His great sacrifice and before the throne of God and found He was accepted and could have remained there. And they never see Him again with their physical eyes. But He says, I will see you. And He came back to them. Your heart will rejoice. And your, heart will, your joy will not be taken from you. The doctrine of the resurrected Lord keeps a measure of joy in our heart if we understand it. He is alive, brethren. He is alive and He is praying for me right now. He is alive and He is waiting for me right now. If I die before He returns, He is waiting for me. He is alive and He is coming for me. Those three truths, based on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, should settle down like dew upon mown grass in our hearts and cause us a measure of rejoicing in the midst of the days in which we live, brethren. In the midst of our own failures, in the midst of our lack of understanding, in the midst that the world is rejoicing over its victory over Jesus. I will see you again. I'm not going to leave you alone in a world rejoicing over my death. That's the interpretation of the text. Let's make some application and I'm running out of time. There are times when it seems that sin, Satan, and the world all seem to be gaining the victory over our God, over His Word, and over His people. You want to talk about dark days? Those moments before Calvary, when the Roman soldiers took Him and the Jews took Him away from the disciples to kill Him. Those are dark days, brethren. And it seems like Satan has the upper hand and it seems like the Jews have won and it seems like the Gentiles have won and it seems like this handful of disciples afraid of the Jews hiding in an upper room are losers for it all. It seems like sometimes the world has defeated the overall purposes of our God. It seems like sometimes that we are 
taking up a defensive position, walling our walling ourselves in, separating ourselves so much because the world hates us, and we're just trying to just get a little peace in our living room or or in our little corner of the world because we step out in this world and it's it looks like the world has overcome everything that is good and right and bless it. In Psalm 143, David said, My spirit, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me, and my heart desolate, like a desert. That because he was being persecuted, and it looked like the enemy was winning. Psalm 42, verse 3, again, David said, they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Hmm? Even people who profess to be Christians are saying, Where's God in all of this? Where is God? The enemy is saying, You said God was going to do such and such. Where is God? Yeah. God is where He's always been. On His throne. Nothing's changed. And the hour looks dark, doesn't it? Where's God? That's what the enemy say. Psalm 71, verse 11. God hath forsaken him. Let's take him. Now's the time to overcome him because God has forsaken him. Now's the time to rise up and destroy that Christian. Now is the time to rise up and destroy Christianity. Now is the time to put it down once and for all. We'll kill their leader. We'll put him in the grave. We'll seal it up with a stone. We'll put soldiers there. Now is the time to stamp this thing out. Because God seems like He has forsaken him. Isn't that... What it feels like. Isn't that what it felt like? Over 2,000 years ago. I think I'm right on that. And certainly through the history of Christianity, I think it can be said, the saints have felt the sting of the enemy saying, where is your God? The sting of the enemy saying, now is the time to destroy Him. Because God has forsaken Him. When the child of God feels that God has left him alone and he feels that the world is victorious, it is a time of sorrow. It is a time of darkness. It is a time of weeping. It is a time of grieving. The psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Okay? But, I love that. Three letter word. But God. That settles it. But joy comes in the morning. And the Psalms, night is sorrow and grief and, and, and burden and lamenting and weeping. Morning is joy and songs and, and a fresh beginning. Weeping may endure. Sorrow may endure for a time of darkness. But joy is coming in the morning. 
Joy is coming in a time of light. This is the pattern of Christianity from the beginning. This is Christianity in a nutshell. And I, Holy Spirit brought me under conviction. I spent some time in sorrow over my sin. I spent some time in darkness. I could not figure out my right hand from my left. I didn't know which way was up or which way was down. I was going to hell. My sin was taking me there. But I didn't know what the answer was. In the midst of that conviction, as I was reading the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit began to reveal that Jesus Christ could save me from my sins. And then out of His own mouth, He said to this sinner, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And then another sinner, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And I thought, if He could say that to them, He might say it to me. Lord, will You forgive me? And He did. And my night was turning to day. And death was turning to life. And darkness became light. That's the beginning. Isaiah put it this way, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Why? My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? Because He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. I was naked before Him in sin and He wrapped me up in the righteousness of Christ and set me free from that sin. After being saved, the child of God is baptized and added to one of the Lord's churches. In that church, they begin to serve and worship the Lord. Their membership in one of the Lord's churches is a means of joy for them. Acts 2, 46 and 47. And they, speaking of the Lord's church, continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily such as should be saved. That's Acts chapter 2. They were added to the church and they were praising and rejoicing and thanking God. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Now they're fleeing from persecution. As Saul rises up in persecution against the church at Jerusalem. The same church that in Acts chapter 2 is praising God and rejoicing. Night has fallen. Persecution comes. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It's night and it's day, and it's day and it's night. And that's the, that's the Christian life. As a child of God, we learn the Word of God. And what we learn from the Word of God causes our hearts to rejoice. David said, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In Psalm 119, verse 54, David said, Thy statutes are my son, have become my songs. By the way, that's why we sing the Scriptures. God's Word has become our songs. But we also learn in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is profitable, given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for correction. One of the four words used. Correction. And when we are being corrected and by the Word of God, that the very Word of God that causes our heart to rejoice... The same word convicts us 
corrects us, causes a time of darkness to come. And we confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, He is then faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we step out of darkness into light again. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. Even when persecution arises in the life of a child of God, they still find they can rejoice. They can rejoice because God has promised them something that the world cannot take away from them. God has promised one of His children. God has promised all of His children. Heaven is yours. And the world may kill you. They may rob you. They may take you away, everything that you have in this world, and let them do it because heaven is yours. They can only go so far. They will not be able to go any further. They will not be able to take heaven away from you. We live in a very blessed place in this country. We look at this country and wonder sometimes uh, how blessed it is with all that is going on. And yet, brethren, you are not running from your life for your life. You are not hiding uh, because they're looking to kill you. You are not being robbed. All your money is still safe in the bank. You are not having your children stolen from you because they want, to be, want them to be trained in, the, in Hinduism or in communism or in Islam. You've not suffered those kind of things. You've not been beaten and driven out of Santa Ana or Coleman or some other place where you might live. Told never to come back here. Having to leave your house and everything going out with nothing but stripes on your back. That hasn't happened. But it has happened in India. We have not yet arrived to that place. But still, in whatever struggles we may have, whatever they may be, we can find some joy in it. Not because we're enjoying the time. Oh no. No man enjoys that. But because we have a promise that no man can take from us. I am yours. And you are mine. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 41, the Bible says they departed from the presence of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, after having been beaten and warned never to preach the gospel again, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced in it. They gathered the church, they prayed. They told us not to preach. We're going to pray. Ask God for more grace to do what? To preach. To stay faithful. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34, the Apostle Paul writes to these Jews and says in Hebrews 10 and verse 34, you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully, listen, the spoiling of your goods took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Wow! What do we need to get Paul out of prison? Well, we need this much. Well, I'll sell my house. I'll sell my car. I'll, 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 I'll help where I can. I'll give. Because i got a treasure in heaven that, that cannot be matched by anything on this earth. 
And I'll do it joyfully. Abraham, Hebrews chapter 11, wandered in the wilderness, not knowing where he would go. We are not there yet, brother. But he was. How did he continue? Looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Wandering in the wilderness because he's focused on a city that is not in the wilderness, but is in heaven. Moses, Hebrews 11, 24-27, endured hardness. How did he do so? Because he was able by faith to see Him who was invisible. Do you realize Christians see things nobody else can see? We see God. We can't touch Him and feel Him and taste Him or smell Him, but we know He's there. We see heaven. We haven't been there yet. But it's waiting for us. And we see it because God has said it and faith has laid hold on it. We look at things that nobody else can see and we see them. And what we can see is falling all around us, perishing, and we're able to do so because we're looking beyond to a city whose builder and maker is God. That's Christianity. Living in darkness on the world with moments of light. Looking for light where there will never be darkness again. That's Christianity. And though God may seem very far away at times, yet He has promised to draw near to us again and again and again. I will see you again. Psalm 3, verse 2 and 3. Many there be which say unto me, There is no help for him in God. But the psalmist replies, But thou, O God, art, present tense, my shield. Art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. Present tense. Right now, there is no help for him in God. And at this moment, you're my shield and you're lifting my head up. I'm wandering around like this. They're going to kill me. They're going to do something. And you come along and there's God, my shield. By the way, that word shield is all around me. Surrounded. And He's lifting up my head so that I might lift up my head and see my help coming from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Psalm 71, 11 and 12. The enemy saying, quote, God hath forsaken him. Persecute and take him. There is none to deliver him. Verse 12. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. That in the English seems to indicate God is a long distance off. But what he's asking is, be not far from me, as though he's asking... You stay right here because I know you're here. Don't leave God. Because this is what they're saying. Don't leave. Because I know you are right here, right now. Psalm 37, 23 through 28. Listen. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, though he fall, this fall 
as I've explained before, is not so much related to a fall into sin as it is a fall in relation to severe persecution. In relation to a severe trial. A failure or falling in the midst of a hard place, a hard trial in life. Though he fall, the Hebrew word, not referring to sin, though we may sin in the midst of a trial, okay? But it's not referring to that. It's referring to the intensity of the heat of the persecution in the trial. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? Why? Because for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, let me ask you a question. How can God hold you up with his hand if he's far away? Oh, you. <laughs> Brother Pat, that's too simple. Well, I happen just to simply believe that if God's holding my hand, that means He's close by. He'll never leave us. Yes. Listen to the rest of it. Though He fall, He shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth His hand. Now, David, the psalmist continues, I have been young. Now am I old. Yet what? I have not seen the righteous forsaken. What does that mean? God has never left them. Nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth and his seed is blessed. And so the conclusion is, depart from me or depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore for the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked will be cut off. There are times in our life when God feels like He's a million miles away. And the enemy seems like He is winning. But they are not. Because God's not a million miles away. He drawn up real close. I'll see you. I'll see you. This is the application. I will see you again. What a blessing that was to my heart this week as I meditated on it. I hope it has been a blessing and a help to you this morning. Let's pray.